you've just got to be able to understand how people operate. You've got to be able to connect with them and you've got to be able to bring them together as a team. Welcome to Create New Futures. Thought-provoking conversations with leaders, experts, and interesting minds. Join us as we explore ideas and reflect on practices that you can use and apply to create and shape the future. With your host, author and strategy consultant, Aviv Shahar. Welcome to Create New Futures, where we develop conversations with successful professionals and thought leaders to explore ideas and practices you can apply to create new futures for yourself and for your business. This is Aviv, and today I'm speaking with Rohit Tender. Rohit is the Senior Vice President and Business Leader of Genpact Analytics and Research Business. In this capacity, he drives the growth of the analytics business and the development of solutions to help clients harness the value of big data and analytical insights. Rohit has 25 years of leadership experience across industries with roles at Accenture, GE, IBM, and Hewlett-Packard. His unique skill is taking on a complex space that's undergoing transformation and leading his organization to build clarity of purpose and structure and deliver performance and financial results. I have initially met Rohit when he was the Vice President of Strategy and Worldwide Head of HP Global Analytics. In this conversation with Rohit, we explore his professional growth and capture insights from his experience in leadership roles at Accenture, GE, IBM, and HP. Here then is my conversation with Rohit. Rohit, it's great to have you here. Welcome. Thanks, Aviv. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What have I missed in terms of your early background and experience in this introduction? I think you hit it uh, just perfectly on the spot for this recording. This is just, just fine. I know you're just back from a travel. And so where have you been and uh, what are you working on these days? Aviv, it's a tough job traveling around the globe these days. And um, it gets even tougher when you end up once in a while traveling with the family because uh, if you make the mistake of pointing out that the furniture in one of the business lounges at the airport has changed, uh, the wife suddenly turns back and tells you, how can you never notice those changes when I do that at home? So it's getting, <laughs> it's getting trickier and trickier to travel out there. Um, but part of the job, I've been in Florida and Miami for a conference uh, about um, anti-money laundering. I was in India uh, for another set of uh, meetings. And uh, New York, uh, I've been trying to avoid going there, but I've already made a few trips uh, with all the snow and all the cold out there, uh, trying to make sure I still have enough clothes, uh, warm clothes <laughs> when I get there, when I go there from sunny California. For location and for people that are not familiar with Genpact, can you give us some understanding of what Genpact is and what uh, the company brings to market? Sure. So Genpact originally started off as GE Shared Services Unit, and it got so terribly successful that um, GE's customers started knocking on their doors saying, let us in. And because of that, in 2005, GE spun off Genpact as an independent unit. It's listed on the stock exchange and the New York Stock Exchange with the letter G, uh, which we were lucky to get at the time. And over the course of uh, the last uh, 10 or 10, 12 years, Genpact has become a company that helps its clients transform itself from the traditional space that they work in to accommodate and accept changes, to bring in digital tech capabilities, to help drive much more efficient processing of their operations, uh, running them with the right level of analytics, digital, and process capability. So that's what we do. We help our businesses go from where they are today to where they need to be to be competitive in the future. So the value proposition is helping your clients operate at a higher level of insight and efficiency as a result. Absolutely. On the operation side, um, a lot of 
efficiency, a lot of transforming yourself so that you are able to compete with the new companies like the new fintechs that are coming out who are built on a digital first kind of foundation who don't have the legacy of old systems and old data things slowing them down. So we give our clients the process, the new capabilities and the insights not only to run their operations, but also to make effective and better business decisions as they go out into the marketplace. As my introduction indicated, you have held roles in a number of admired companies. And since the focus of my fascination with the leadership journey is always about what enables people to thrive and get to grow to the new responsibilities that they find themselves in later, I wonder if you can share some of the earlier experience and the setting in your upbringing that helped you and guided you in the direction that you later took in your leadership roles? Sure. Um, interesting question. It takes me back a few years. Um, well, growing up, I was growing up in uh, New Delhi in India, which um, um, if it doesn't look anything like it used to in those days. We, we used to live in a place where there were maybe five houses in a 25-acre space of land. And now I think you'll find uh, five families living in each house. Probably that's how crowded it's got. Um, in the early years, I, I grew up in a family where my father was uh, a pilot, a commercial pilot. Uh, so he used to fly around the globe. And I was lucky to get the exposure with him and get exposed to various cultures, various uh, capabilities that you know a normal child would not be able to uh, get sitting just out of India in those days. And as I picked up those capabilities and that diverse set of experiences, what it did was it made me an extremely curious person. I knew that I could not be just looking at what existed in front of me and assume that that was the best. So I figured out that if you look beyond, you would be able to find something better. Or if you look beyond and you put two and two together, you'd be able to find a better solution to whatever you were looking at. And that solution could uh, range in those young days from the tennis racket that you that you could buy in the local market versus what you could get from somewhere else to the kind of shoes that you wore or the technology that you got exposed to. So it, it made me a curious person who was always looking beyond my immediate realm for ideas, for solutions. It also made me a person who could appreciate uh, different points of view. And, and, and that helped me a lot as I was growing up because I was always open to ideas. I was always open to opinions. I was always open to deferring set of opinions. And uh, I, I use that on a day-to-day -day basis in, in my career today. It's, I, I think it's close to what you refer in your book as conversations. How do you have those conversations? And I've, I've found that conversing with people and trying to understand where they were coming from rather than always trying to show what you knew, that just added so much more value and so much more learning to me that I've been able to amass that. I'm actually, I'd say I'm standing on a sum total of all the experiences that I've had that I've gained from interacting with people from across the globe um, as I was growing up. Fascinating context because the unique experience of your father being a commercial pilot exposed you earlier on to the world and in essence made you a citizen of the world, which is an experience that you are later able to bring to the kind of roles you take in global companies. That and the open mind and the curiosity that it engendered in you and how that experience enables you to see diverse point of views and assimilate and internalize opportunities and possibilities that perhaps others would not be open to see. And so can you trace when you're finishing high school and you are thinking about the higher education and the next steps that you want to take and what are the ideas you have in mind at that time? Funny you take me back to that age. A um, couple of things I can share. 
Uh, one, firstly, to answer your question directly, this is what I tell my kids. When I was growing up, most of the things that I work on today didn't even exist as a career. So I was absolutely clueless about what I was going to do when I grew up. We grew up in an environment where unless you could clearly state that you're going to be a doctor, an architect, a musician, um, and then it starts getting grayer, an engineer, uh, you were considered to be clueless about what you wanted to do. I fell into the last category. And um, I ended up taking up computer sciences because it fascinated me. It was a new space. It was a new area. When, when we started off with those huge machines that would fill up a full floor and did my bachelor's and master's in computer sciences. But I don't think even at the end of that master's, I was clear what I wanted to do. Because just as I finished my master's, I left all of computer sciences. I walked out of the startup that I had created along with a few buddies. And I went into, of all things, advertising. And that to the creative side of advertising. So I used to write ads and I used to write copy for ads uh, with uh, J.W. Thompson, which is one of the largest uh, advertising firms, as you would know. What was the startup that you initially embarked on? It was core system software. Uh, we used to do a lot of uh, development in terms of security, computer security, information security. At the other end of the spectrum, we also worked with the Indian government to help them uh, crack open a lot of systems where they suspected data has been stored for illegitimate purposes, for fraudulent business transactions, as well as at that point of time, monitoring some of the potential adverse uh, events uh, uh, which, which they wanted to track out a system. So hardcore systems, in the depth of, uh, in, in, in really the dark depths of data, trying to p- figure out and, and understand that data is what we used to do. We also started a whole division doing application software for the hospital industry and the shoe industry, which was big in India at that time. And also expanded it just as a hobby to assembling uh, uh, computer systems. Um, when um, it, it, that was more as a hobby, but it would pay for some of the excitement uh, we used to create by having motorbikes and, and things we would spend our money on. So you then simply sell your startup and head into the advertising space for a new adventure? See, now that I'm sitting in Palo Alto and in the hub of the Silicon Valley and investment banking, I wish I had sold it and not just said, guys, I'm walking out. Thanks so much. So then you find yourself in the advertising space, which is very different to computer sciences. What are some of the important learnings you are able to distill and internalize at that time? Uh, Very importantly, I learned the true meaning of the song, um, Paul Simon, our Garfunkel song, which was writing songs that lips never shared. So... It realized how important it was for anything you developed, any product that you made, to be able to advertise it and bring it out in the eyes of the people so that they would buy it. Otherwise, the best idea would die a death inside a briefcase or inside your room. And also, it kind of accentuated my belief that you need in this world to succeed, you need to be a good storyteller. So you've got to be able to take an idea, you've got to be able to take a product, but then you've got to be able to tell a story around that. Otherwise, it's just another dead product lying on, let's say, a shelf. It's the story that makes the difference. To connect with emotions, to connect with imagination, we have to tell a story. Absolutely. And so what happens then? How long did you stay in the advertising space and where does it lead you next? I was there for just under a year and uh, I had actually made the mistake of applying to a few places. And I say that in jest, um, a few large companies and some of them traced me down and tracked me down. And Accenture Consulting was the most exciting one out of them where uh, they called me for a conversation 
and said, Rohit, what are you doing in advertising? Why are you in advertising? You've done your computer sciences and you've done your bachelor's and master's. And the answer I gave to the, the MD for the managing director was, I said, I'm in it because I can. And he said, what do you mean? I said, see, we talk about, if we get onto the tube in those days, the TV was called the tube. You get onto the tube and you talk about how what you're being taught in school, in colleges, doesn't really work in, in the real business world. It's a question of how do you take it and how you apply it. And that has to be taught by the companies that are doing the hiring. And there was a huge question about gap in terms of ready talent for the market. And what I said is, one, I learned all of this in computer sciences. I applied it. I've now seen the marketing and the advertising aspect of it. Here's how, for me, it all comes together as a wider set of end-to-end capabilities of being able to conceptualize something to take it, taking it to market. Three minutes later, I had my offer in my hand saying, we want you on the team. We're starting up Accenture Consulting in India, and we need people like you who can um, think about things uh, you know, beyond just the closeted ways and things in which they have been defined. So let me capture the learning insight of this story you share, which is that sometimes it is smart to follow a nonlinear path and take the next step following an inspiration that guides you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do, which is the essence of the story that Steve Jobs tells about picking up calligraphy. And in this case, you found yourself with an advertising experience, and all of a sudden you're able to bring to Accenture a background and a set of skills and experiences that create for you competitive advantage. Absolutely. It's, it's about working on yourself and continuously evaluating also what are some of the things that you can add to your arsenal of capabilities to differentiate you from the rest to make you be able to do things beyond what 20 other people would be able to do who, who kind of are walking in stride with you. And, and, and therefore, you've got to sometimes look at yourself, especially in your early career, on how do you, how do you package yourself? And, and it becomes important, therefore, to add these capabilities to your arsenal of skill sets. Can you trace at what point in your career do you develop this conscious thought, which is, how do I package myself? Is this something that you had back then, or is it something that you are now able to develop and frame with the benefit of time looking backward? So interestingly, if I were to trace it back, I would trace it all the way back to high school. Mm. (laughs) <laughs> not as part of my career. I might have better words and better language to, to wrap the whole thing in. But I remember way back in high school, I got thrown out of school uh, for a week. I was suspended uh, because apparently I had not done well in, in, in one of the exams. And um, when I was allowed back in school, I found out that my father had gone and met with uh, the principal who had thrown me out. And, and said, hey, my son's never performed so bad. I mean, what happened? And what he told him is, Mr. Tundon, Captain Tundon, my problem is not that your son has performed well or bad. My challenge is your son has not performed and not utilized the, all the potential that he has. And that's what I want him to do. He might be doing great in exhibiting three of the qualities he's got out of the 10, but that's not good enough for me. Wow. So not holding you accountable to a performance measure, but rather holding you accountable to your potential. Absolutely fascinating insight. And when I talk about the the three pillars of trust and we examine the behaviors that create trust, one of those that we look at is the idea of holding people accountable to the true potential and expecting them to deliver the fuller capacity. That must have been an absolutely enlightened teacher to take that kind of a position 
and expectation from you as a student. Absolutely. You know, anytime if one asks me who's been one of the key mentors for me, his name is one of the first names that pops up. That was a life-changing moment for me. <laughs> so at that point, you are at Accenture India. And so what are the skills and capabilities that you're learning and developing through this experience? So as I mentioned, Accenture was just starting off its operations in India, the consulting operations that didn't even do any of the business process management pieces in India at the time. What a small team of five or seven people had to do was be able to represent this huge global giant in the local Indian economy. So we would have to be prepared to have conversations on anything from strategy to supply chain optimization, to reorg, to process technology change. Those were used to be the three kind of pillars on which Accenture used to stand. And, and what it did was you, you realized that you were not walking in there as an individual, you were walking in representing a large organization and there is absolutely no way you could do that on your own without significant amount of reliance on your teammates, both who were physically there, as well as who you had to connect with virtually. And you can imagine in the 90s, connecting back virtually wasn't that easy. But who could you could connect with on a global level, how to leverage their knowledge, their experience, and then be able to condense and take it to a client in a manner that you could convince them of the ability of Accenture to deliver what needed to be done versus you delivering what needed to be done. So you are learning at that stage to be a team player and you're learning to access the resources of a large company and you also face a variety of situations where you need to be able to address and respond to topics on a whole range uh, of areas and in many ways, it forces you to become a generalist, which is perhaps the best preparatory training to becoming later a general manager of almost anything. Absolutely. You know, if you limit yourself to, again, different people have different aspirations. Some people can be extremely deep in technology, for example, or a particular skill set and grow in that line. But if you aspire to be a general manager, extremely important for you to go wide and be able to leverage different capabilities, different skill sets from across your team, beyond your teams, and beyond all geographies. What do you remember as the most challenging assignment or biggest challenge that you faced as you're working with your team to build the India arm of Accenture? couple of them I would mention. One, how do you take the, how should I call it, the say-do ratio? You know, find, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line that gets drawn beyond which you can't just talk about what is possible. How do you take it to a level of being able to execute? And that's when it became a reality that you had to roll up your sleeves. And because you were a small team, dive into the details of everything and make things happen. Uh, and, I, and I mean the phrase, mean, make things happen rather than do things. Uh, right. Because you, again, couldn't do everything yourself, but your ability to understand everything from technology to process to the business reality, and thereby be able to guide and lead teams who had to be assembled and put together for every assignment. It's not teams you've been working with for years. Uh, you had to put these teams together, diverse set of people, and managing them through the entire process. I would say that would be the biggest challenge that one faced at that point in time. Right. So your early experience with leadership is right there at uh, this stage with Accenture India when you need to pull together resources to uh, meet and deliver to the opportunities and, and the needs that are presented to you. Absolutely. That's where I learned the, the, the fundamentals of leading large team, because before that it was more personal leadership and then being able to work with a couple of colleagues and getting things done uh, because you were the boss anyway. So, 
So what happens then? I believe you stayed at Accenture for seven years. And what happened next? I did. I was traveling like a madman and also went through some crazy experiences. I was in Indonesia. We had to bail the team out. We had to evacuate the team under military cover because of the, the coup that happened there. And I, that's the time I decided, I told my family, that's it, done. I'm going to move away from all of this work. Uh, stopped traveling. Um, had a little child at the time. So I said, I'm going to reduce my travel. And that's around the time when uh, GE was uh, uh, looking at setting up its operations in India and reached out to me and um, offered me an opportunity to be part of the team that set up what is now Genpact. What year is that when GE is setting up its Indian operation? This was in 98. Um, so they'd done some proof of concepts. And in 98, they started the conversation with me and I joined them early 99. And at what point do you become the CIO for GE India? So uh, interesting journey out there. I GE hired me to be one of the key business development people for what is now Genpack because of my global experience that we talked about. And after doing that, and let me mash it all up, I did that Then I became the, C, the Six Sigma leader for the company. I also set up some new lines of business, e-business. Again, it's all startup mode, so you can understand. And in three years after we grew uh, to more than 10,000 people, I moved to the U.S. to be with GE Commercial Finance as the Six Sigma leader there to help drive uh, lean Six Sigma across non-industrial processes that had never been done before, even within GE. And rising out of the success of that, uh, the CIO and quality head of GE who'd seen uh, me work uh, very closely in driving that change, he asked me to take on this leadership role back in India as a CIO for GE India and Southeast Asia, apart from a few other things that were put into that role. What would you say about the learning and development experience at GE? GE, obviously a company that prides itself in terms of how it develops its people and the investment that it makes in its people. And so how would you describe the most important elements of that experience for you? So a couple of things there. One, very clearly in terms of leadership development and nurturing talent, G was absolutely crucial in, in my learning. And it was an environment where practically every leader that I met, I would look up to and aspire to be like that person, which was something that was new for me. It was, wow, I always thought I was up there, but I suddenly got pitched, um, I wouldn't say against, I, I got thrown into the teams of leaders who just knew so much more, who knew how to lead teams much better. And it was a daily learning experience getting into work and working with those leaders. I don't want to pitch it against what it was in Accenture because that was a totally different kind of learning experience. The other big thing at GE was just, just the scale. The size of the projects, the size of the work, the size of the impact, being able to work on multi-billion dollar portfolios and, and drive a, an incremental change there, which would be equivalent to a full year's revenue for the initial years of Accenture in India, was, was like, it, it just got you to a different level of uh, values that you were working with and business impact that you were working with. And the third, you know, I like to, I, I'll use my favorite analogy of uh, Mona Lisa. You know, when you work in an Accenture kind of place, you get to see the year of one painting, the nose in another, the smile in another. You never get to orchestrate the entire painting. And, and being in GE and being in a large multi-billion dollar business, you're able to see all parts of it and you're able to see it all come together as one uh, beautiful picture, a beautiful painting, which, which is an experience in itself. It's, um, I know you love classical music, so it's like listening to the different instruments being performed separately versus the whole orchestra coming together 
and and listening to that sound. So it's it it, it was that's the best analogy I can give in terms of how the learning was. And the impression of scale and of seeing a large enterprise operating and humming together is a formative experience that you can then take forward into any next challenge that you face. And the other thing I'll highlight from your story is this absolutely rare and and precious experience of being surrounded by very smart people who have experience that you don't have. And this is truly the aspirational position. The aspirational position is not to be the smartest person in the room, but rather to be surrounded by people that can enhance your experience because of what they bring to the table and looking at them and finding opportunities to emulate and carry that experience forward is is truly a precious experience. And then at some point, you, I believe, make the transition to IBM. So give me a bit of a context for that next leg of the journey. Sure. Before I jump to that, you know, one important point you said, and I don't want to miss um, adding to that, the whole thing of surrounding yourself with people who know more than you, I use it all the time when I build my teams. I make sure that anyone who comes and joins my team knows more than me in at least one or more areas so that it's not a one-way learning process for them. It's a two-way learning process. We can talk about that later, but I didn't want to miss sharing that. It's it's something that I, I learned um, at GE as well, getting the right people on the team who, can, who you can learn from rather than just from your leaders. Indeed. So the transition, oh, um, you know, I'd go back to your introduction. As you've seen, I enjoy being in areas where I can drive a lot of change and I can influence a lot of results. After spending uh, around nine odd years with Genpact and GE, last of it was I was running the analytics business for Genpact, and we were doing so incredibly well that we didn't want to change anything and we wanted to continue on the glide path that we had set ourselves for, and that was the right decision for the business. But obviously that made it a place where I wasn't being utilized enough. And again, much more potential than being utilized. And I said, I, I, need, to, I need to get some fresh air. I need to get out. And luckily the leaders were very open, receptive, they understood. And that's when I joined IBM as it's a long designation, so I won't go into it. But basically, I was I was running everything other than HR and finance for IBM's uh, business process services uh, unit and um, set up some new lines of business there. Again, started up their analytics practice, which grew into and merged into the whole Smarter Planet initiative for IBM. And I did that for a bunch of years before I realized that I, I needed uh, a different kind of environment and I needed a more global play uh, than I was finding um, available to me at IBM. I'm curious, Rohit, coming from GE to IBM, how would you characterize the culture of these two great companies, one against the other? Uh, That's a very tough question, Aviv. And uh, I've got lots of friends in both the companies, so you're going to put me on a spot by asking me that question. (laughs) (laughs) Both have their own uh, positives. I obviously grew up in GE, and therefore I enjoyed working in an environment which was more open and um, um, more, you had much more access. I mean, I I could reach out to Jack Welch and I've had meetings with Jeff Mel when I was at GE. Versus an IBM, very, very structured, and it works beautifully for a lot of people like that, Clearly, IBM and G both hugely successful. Companies both hugely successful in, in generating leaders and in, in generating thought leadership. And I spent so much of time at G when I went to IBM. It took a little bit of time to adjust to that culture, but once I did, I found it to be a great learning place for doing a lot of things in a very structured manner, in a very disciplined manner. Whereas at GE, you got a, a, I got used to a little more elbow room and wiggle room, and one could come to the table with an idea regardless of where in the organization you were. 
Uh, and at IBM, it had to go through a significant process. So what I did was, even at IBM, I decided I'm going to figure out how to manage this whole process and figure out how to get on top of it. And I did that with getting an acquisition through during one of the most uh, toughest times, economic crisis uh, in 2008, 2009, around that time, and successfully got that through. Then did one more thing. I successfully eliminated the job they'd hired me for by wearing my strategy role and showing how an entire layer that they had created for which they wanted me to be the head, uh, it just didn't make sense. So I surprised my boss's boss's boss and people who work at IBM will understand the layering. When over lunch, he was uh, discussing me taking over my boss's job and I said, actually, here's my blueprint on how the job should get eliminated. So I, that's what I did out there, setting up some new lines and and, and that's what I found the difference there, that it was so structured that you had to first learn it. But for someone like me, after you'd learned and mastered it to just continue working in that manner on an ongoing basis was not something that I enjoyed very much. The important learning of this part of the story is that there are different elements that together shape the experience that we develop through our careers. So obviously, creating for yourself a role that brings challenges and learning opportunities is one critical element. Another is the broader culture and the ethos of the company. And then there are other elements too. But the important thread through this is that at every stage during our career, we are not just merely doing a job. Rather, you have two jobs at every stage along your career. There is the job you actually do, and there is the learning and the development job, which is your interior experience. And I discuss this in Create New Futures, where I talk about champion learners and how critical it is that we bring ourselves to the professional experience with that focus and intensity of wanting to extract the most learning out of every situation. And the other story you share there of how you got yourself out of a job, this really is something that I've seen and observed with some of the best and most successful leaders, which is that they get themselves out of a job either because they train somebody to succeed them or they simply eliminate that job altogether. Then at some point, you make the transition to HP and obviously a company that at that time is going through one change after another, after another, Share a bit about that experience of coming into HP at that time as the company goes through tremendous transformation and change. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my life, of my career. Last uh, six years that I was there at HP, um, I was actually going, I put in my papers, leaving IBM and going on a sabbatical. I wanted to get some time for myself, do some sport and write a book. I planned to go to all the four tennis grand slams that year. And then HP chased me down saying that they needed help in um, understanding and organizing around analytics. Uh, This is 2010. I remember August, September timeframe when I was comfortably planning out the rest of my year. And uh, they chased me down and said, okay, here's, here's a couple of tickets. Go meet these people in Bangalore. They're coming in from Germany and from the US. And uh, no commitments, just go and meet your friends, spend a couple of days there, and in between take out two hours for these discussions. I said, why not? I've got nothing better to do. I'm I'm, I'm taking it easy. Had some very interesting conversations with the people who I met. And before I left the room, they said, we want you on the team. And uh, they wanted me to speak with um, their boss, someone who worked for Ma- uh, Mark Hurd, um, who was still the CEO at the time. So HP at that point in time had these disparate teams which used to work on data, some do reporting, some do analytics. This is all for internal stuff, but there wasn't a strategy behind it. So they wanted me to come on board and grab that and make sense out of it. And I committed that I'm on, but maybe only for a year. 
Um, now to the fascinating part of change. A week before I joined, there was a change at the CEO level. And I got a call saying, hey, we're still keen and we're still interested in the strategy that we shared. We've confirmed with the board that they want to go ahead. So please join us. So I went ahead and came on board. I said, okay, great. Still gives a great uh, platform to drive some change. And then we had a new CEO, Leo. He came on board, worked with him on a, on a bunch of initiatives and agreed a plan to how to drive analytics forward. But then he left. Then I started reporting into the CFO of the company. And she was amazed with the kind of capability and things that we could do. And that's when um, we got aligned to, to the uh, chief strategy officer for, for HP. And cut a long story short, four CEOs, six bosses in six years, and the huge amount of change of joining a company, which was HP, and now it's two companies, HPE and HP with all the changes that have gone through. So it was there throughout the journey, crafting the best part for how to drive analytics within that and how to manage teams and drive each of the businesses' agendas through those six years. One of the most exciting and challenges, challenging places for me to be and challenging from a positive aspect, to be able to continue to deliver on what you are supposed to with um, all the jigsaw pieces getting rearranged every few months um, was, was quite a high point for me. So Rohit, two questions about this phase in terms of your career and experience. First, about leadership. And what is it that you're learning through this experience about leading teams through times of tremendous change when there is unclarity and ambiguity and even confusion, what's the learning about that? And also more at a personal level, what is it that you're learning about yourself that enables you to be adaptive and, and agile? So combine these for me, both the, the personal discovery and learning and the, the leadership component that you extracted as a learning value from this Hewlett Packard through transformation, and you right in the middle of it at that time. So we've one very important, and you you talk about it in your book as well, is you've got to be able to welcome change. You know, a lot of people, as soon as they think about change, the antennas go up on, no, why do we need to change? Everything's fine. We'll leave it as it is. And a lot of energy is spent in trying to resist change. That energy is better spent in trying to understand the rationale for the change. So A, you can best optimize how you need to work and how you need to organize your teams. B, you need to be able to understand it so you can communicate it down the line. And three, if you understand it well, you can probably anticipate and be a few steps ahead of the change. Very important that people don't spend their time resisting change, embrace it, and actually, in, I like to look at change as an opportunity. So big learning was, as these changes were happening, how would one craft out an opportunity for the team to do something very different that they would never have done before, to impress upon them that this is a once-upon-a-lifetime opportunity to be part of such a change and jump into the battlefield rather than sitting on the sidelines and trying to prevent the change. Um, I think that was a big learning. You're framing the, the martial arts Aikido pivot of instead of resisting change, embracing change and using the change to identify opportunity and move forward with the velocity and the power of new emerging opportunities that present themselves through the change. Absolutely. And I'm not the expert and I know you are. It's almost like using the momentum of the other person's body to drive the change versus trying to create a direct head-on impact. Yes. And what else are you learning about leading teams through times of change when it's confusing 
and you still need to execute and deliver results. So very important, clarity of communication and ongoing communication with the team so that you are totally transparent with them and you are able to put them in the driver's seat for the change rather than them feel that they are being pulled in a, or pushed in a particular direction. I felt that if you are able to achieve that with your leaders and show them how that they should ripple that down, that change becomes extremely smooth and actually becomes beneficial for people in the, in the whoever I'm involved. But the amount of communication, the amount of touch, the amount of empathy that you've got to display and you've got to have during the change process is extremely crucial. Open and transparent communication and also being transparent about what is known and what is unknown and in it also being transparent about what is in your control and what is not in your control. All these are critical along with this idea of embracing change rather than resisting change. These are important elements of leading through times of change to help ease and remove some of the unnecessary anxiety uh, in the system. As I listen to the evolving story of your career, it appears that at times you sought the change and wanted to shift from one scenery to another, and then at other times, other people reached out to you and the new opportunity found you. Is this a true observation, and is this how you experienced it as the story unfolds? Absolutely. I mean, it's. I don't remember when I've actually gone out seeking for, let me call it a job. I have always tried to create the change where I am and, uh, and, and drive that. But once in a while, like you said, yeah, the opportunity is not, changes come my way. And whether it's within the same organization or outside, you say, okay, great. It sounds like something exciting enough. Um, let's go, go for it. Do you feel that the early formative experience that made you, in a way, a citizen of the world, and then later that you developed roots both in India, of course, and in the U.S., that these provided you with an advantage as you then moved from one role to the next? Um, absolutely. It is, I'd say, if I had not been able to get that kind of exposure, it wouldn't have opened up my eyes. I mean, I remember um, the toughest thing that I got charted to do with, you know, my, my dad, who's another huge uh, mentor for me. I asked him at an early point in my career saying, uh, what do you want me to be? And it was a genuine question saying, give me guidance. What do you want me to be when I grow up? And I got the easiest and the toughest guidance that I could have ever got. He said, just be better than me. That's what I want of you. <laughs> And, and, and I'd grown up seeing him react in different environments and how he was able to adapt to different things and how people could approach him. And, and, I, and I just loved that. And I said, I've got to be able to do that. I've got to be able to work in different environments. You change the playing field, I should still be able to play the sport. And, and therefore, uh, getting an appreciation and getting comfortable with working in different environments became very important for me. And I think it, in today's connected world, it is one of the crucial things that you need to be able to be successful. So I've lived and worked in India, in three different parts of India, and people who know India know that different parts of India operate very differently. I've lived and worked in Hong Kong, in Indonesia, in the U.S., and some people will say northeast of U.S. and the west coast where I am, again, totally different working styles. Um, worked in Europe, led teams across uh, Latin America, Europe. You've just got to be able to understand how people operate. You've got to be able to connect with them and you've got to be able to bring them together as a team. Mm. And you can't do that if you don't open your, open your eyes and ears to different ways of working and, and be. Let me ask you about India. I read analysts that believe that the next half century is more than anything in India's story, and that India will surpass China. 
And there are those that believe that India will continue to be an overpromised and underdeliver story. What is your perspective of what's unfolding now in India and what we can expect to see next? You know, there's this old saying that there's always out of chaos is where order comes out of. So we've seen multiple rounds of chaos in India and we've seen order come out of that in, in multiple shapes and forms. For example, nobody can imagine that at a time when you couldn't make a telephone call from one city in India to another without uh, it dropping or you having to scream you know, loud enough so that all your neighbors could hear you, that people took up the initiative to set up infrastructure to, to run call centers for the US and other parts of the world out of India. Breakthrough, it was unimaginable. But some people believed in it and pushed it forward. Fast forward to, let's say, a few years back, huge amount of focus on the services industry and how India has capitalized on it. I think we've come to a point now where, A, India will have to move more and more to innovation and technology to be able to eliminate a lot of stuff that it has built on its own. But be more importantly, do some of the things it's doing today. Leapfrog on technology. Go to the next stage, missing a bunch of cycles in between. And use that for further development of India. So getting to a cashless economy. If we are able to get to that with the right leverage of technology, and we're able to spread it not to the 9% urban population, but spread it to 90% of the population. Huge. We can make a huge difference. So the nation that is more attached to precious metals and has appreciated historically and traditionally gold for its value more than any other nation you believe and you predict will be the first cashless society, large cashless economy. That's absolutely fascinating. And a lot of pointers are indicating that we might actually get there. It's There's a huge push. I mean, just the penetration of mobile phones in the country, absolutely amazing, more than any other part of the world. It's just because, you know, rather than investing in setting up telephone lines in areas where telephones never existed, let's roll out mobiles and mobile services. And, and just that scale allows you to drive the cost down and, and increase penetration. So we've got to be able to capitalize on, on a lot of these technology breakthroughs that are happening and thereby be able to build you know, or I wouldn't say build, accelerate um, to get ahead of um, whoever we are being pitched to, to get ahead of, whether it's China or, or some of the other countries. So you are very bullish about India. I don't see any other country making the kind of steps, taking the kind of steps uh, that India is taking right now. I'm, I'm bullish and optimistic. At least the steps are being taken in the right direction. Let's, we, we've, got to, we've got to wait and see how these play out. You can't drive, you know, you know as well as I do. If you want to drive some drastic change, you can't drive it based on incremental changes. You've got to make some drastic changes. And I see those drastic changes happening. It'll create, lead to some chaos and lead to some disconcert. But um, it is, it, they, these are steps in the right direction. This is a fascinating comment you're making, which is that there isn't any other nation, large nation on the world stage, that at the moment is applying this mindset, which we see in business and in companies, which is that certain change, transformative change, you cannot implement through incremental steps. Rather, you need to take more radical transformative steps to bring about the kind of future, the kind of vision that you have. And it, it appears at the moment that India indeed may be the only large nation that is attempting to implement a coherent, radical, and transformative change. Uh, quite fascinating. Obviously, success will ultimately be determined by execution, but the fact of it is absolutely fascinating. Absolutely. And you see, some of these seeds had been sown a few years back, sowed a few years back. For example, the whole unique ID card, the Aadhaar card that got rolled out in India. I mean, imagine rolling it out in such a populous country. It's the equivalent of your social security number in the US. 
it never existed till a few years back, but it's been rolled out and suddenly you were allowed to open bank accounts based on that. You're allowed to get mobile phone, mobile connections if you've got that. That's kind of your pre-authorization. So it's it's been a staged setup. Some of those changes are not evident because the implementation of those has been shrouded in in huge amount of chaos, but they are all a build up to some of the big steps that can be taken in the future, which will actually have a positive impact. So that's that's what makes me optimistic and bullish about this. That's great. Let me follow up with a couple of more questions. And first, let me ask you about your space, analytics, big data, machine learning, and AI. What do you see as the mega trends shaping that space going forward in the next few years? So it's a very exciting time when, you know, 50-year-old analytics analytics, uh, skills like machine learning and artificial intelligence, which were, you know, being experimented with, talked about, used in a very small fashion, now suddenly have got so much more limelight because technology allows us to really implement the promise of AI and machine learning. And if I were to point out two, and again, the, I mean, if you go into the definitions, is machine learning a part of artificial intelligence? Is computer vision a part of it? You take these consolidated set of technologies, whatever we want to call it, the ability for technology to be able to look at data, to be able to understand it, to be able to parse it, to be able to recognize patterns and come up with recommendations is going to have a huge impact on how previously available data and new data is both managed, stored, and utilized. It's a question of our imagination on how we can prioritize where we want to apply this for the max bank for the buck today. And, you know, add to it the enabling technologies like IoT. You pull all of these together and you suddenly have an environment where for years you have got data out of, let's say, aircraft engines. And you're able to analyze that at the end of a flight or when it comes down for preventive maintenance and see how how things are going. Now you have the ability based on IoT and telecom to get that information on a near real-time basis and with machine learning, churn through that huge amount of, you you generate 10 terabytes of data out of a, a single aircraft engine in a, uh, transatlantic flight. Humans couldn't churn through it, but machine learning, artificial intelligence, now you can go through that data in record time and actually predict potential aircraft engine failure before an, a flight is about to take off, right? So it's a question of how do you accelerate deployment of these technologies and how do you use these technologies to further what manual techniques and capabilities were able to achieve in the past. The dramatic shift in this example that you give represents the shift from the value generated by looking backward at events that happened in the past to machine capability to predict events, so predictive analytics. That's very profound, obviously, in the case of predicting a possible engine failure. I mean, I didn't take the example of... uh the autonomous cars because it's been over abused, but it's all analytics enabled by technology. How do you predict which car is going to go there? Where? What pedestrian, pedestrian might suddenly try to run across the road in front of your car? And how do you then have the loop to react to it? In some cases, it might be a manual reaction back. In some cases, it's an automated reaction saying, whoa, whoa, whoa this aircraft engine's got to be locked up. It won't be allowed to take off. So, Building that entire ecosystem of being able to analyze, predict, and put the feedback and take action, which is what the whole autonomous autonomous car uh, piece is about. It's about where all do you apply? How fast can you get it going? So I sometimes imagine if the amount of money that has been put into cars to try and do this whole autonomous driving cars, 
was deployed somewhere else where there is already a need and a use case, uh, how much further we would have been by now. Yes. What advice would you give yourself today if you were 25 again and you were looking to find the path, your professional path, and how would you advise yourself or anybody else for that matter if you were 25 today? Wow, that's a tough one. Wow. One, uh, don't eat all those pizzas. Uh, somewhere down the years, you will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> Two, more importantly, take more risk. Take more risk. Take more leaps of faith. Don't overanalyze things. I, I see it happening all the time today, and I tell young guy, just overanalyzing and over trying to chart out you know, where you're going to be in like five years, ten years' time. Uh, the world's going to change in the next five to 10 years. Why do you want to plan for so long? Take risks, enjoy what you're doing. The earlier you are in your career, you have the ability to uh, to take those risks and, and make sure you enjoy what you do. Uh, not to say I didn't enjoy what I did, but I think I could have taken a few more risks. The central point that I attempted to make in Create New Futures is the recognition and, and the realization really that Every moment, every conversation, every opportunity is a portal for a possible new future. And that as you share through your stories, if you're curious and open and prepared to embark on new experiences, then you can open for yourself a new future. And actually that this idea of both daring to imagine the future, but also working here and now to embrace the opportunities that emerge for you to make a difference and to discover through these new insights about yourself and about your environment and about how you can create and make a difference is the way to create your new future. And so as we bring this to landing, what parting wisdom and message do you want to share? So I'd say two or three things, you know. Part of the reason I picked up your book and I was enamored by it was it, it extends, extends what I talk to my teams about. They come in, they be talking about taking up a role, and, and I keep reminding them, it's, it's your responsibility to create the role. It's not a hard line design role that exists. You will decide how that role is and how it evolves. And you took it a few steps further, many steps further, by talking about you create your futures. Uh, the second thing is, you know, you look for, keep looking as to what is the role of a leader? And, and again, people will give you 10 different lines and 10 different bullet points of what the role of a leader is. The reason I continued to read your book was um, right up front, it says the role of a leader is to create futures. And I said, whoa, this is the best way I can see it summarized. So I would encourage the younger people, as they start getting into leadership roles, one, start with taking responsibility for creating who you are. Two, take responsibility for your job and your role and what that is. It, never take it on a sheet of paper and say, this is what I need to do. You define and you are responsible for creating it and evolving it. And third, create that future. You have that in your hand, not just for yourself, but for your teams. You're responsible to make it. The second thing I would say is, just like as I mentioned, as I mentioned before, take those risks, take the action. Don't overanalyze. I think in, in, in the book somewhere you meant you talk about uh, within seventy-two hours or something, you need to take action. Right, the seventy-two hour rule that defines that you have a seventy-two hour window to move from idea to actualization or to some action, and that unless you begin the journey to action and actualization, then you quickly reach the point where the new idea or the new insight becomes ineffectual because you are pulled back into the gravitational pull of current conditions. I just like to do things in the instant, say, if this is an action that needs to be taken versus let me put it down on a to-do list and figure out a time on my calendar when I'll get to my to-do list. So I'm going to just take care of it now. Done. Single touch operation. Just move ahead. That's what I like to do. 
But I, I think that 72-hour rule is very important because I've seen people overthink things. And, and I'm a strong believer that you've got to work with your gut, with your heart, and with your brain, and with data, all of those. But uh, the brain is so powerful that you can end up convincing yourself of not doing anything at all if you, if you let the brain go, go amok and keep thinking about something for beyond 72 hours. So don't overthink it. Get to action faster. Go with the field. Take that risk. That's the other thing I would encourage people to do. That's great. The tone that comes with this message that you're offering, Rohit, is one of confidence. and that. To produce movement, we need to take confident actions. And when we do, that's how we instill confidence in other people and they're prepared to join and support the movement and the leadership that we bring to the table. This has been an absolutely rich and fascinating conversation and exploration. And I truly appreciate the opportunity to explore and be in this dialogue with you today, Rohit. Thank you very much. Thank you, Aviv. It's been a pleasure as always talking to you and I really appreciate what you're doing for the young leaders and helping them get through the maze of uh, their lives and their careers. All the very best. Here we are. We've landed this Create New Futures journey and it's your time to take action. Here are a few steps you can take this week. First. Practice deliberate and conscious curiosity. Inquire to understand beyond the obvious. Appreciate different points of view and look to discover new and better solutions. Second, find situations where you are surrounded by inspiring leaders you want to emulate. Hire people who know more than you do in at least one domain and aspect of your business. Third, take smart risks. Take leaps of faith. Don't overanalyze. Discover the opportunity in change. Lead with heart, gut, and brain. One more thing. You can reach me directly by phone and on email to explore how we can help you and your team create your new future. See you next time.